we're the only venture capital firm out there that's focusing on advanced nuclear and the opportunities in advanced nuclear involved in the transition from fossil fuels to something cleaner and in some cases more abundant than fossil yeah. fuels. We believe that nuclear is a transition that gives you a better energy system with more capability to provide energy for more people at an affordable price. Welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals Energy Podcast. We've got a special guest with us today, uh, Rod Adams with Nucleation Capital. Uh, Rod, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and your background, and hopefully we can just kick it off and have an informal conversation. Sure. Uh, I'm Rod Adams. I am currently the managing partner or a managing partner for Nucleation Capital. Uh, I had a rather tortuous journey to get to this position. Started off as a Navy nuke. Uh, joined the submarine program in 1981 uh, after graduation from the Naval Academy. Uh, had the uh, honor of being one of the last classes to get interviewed uh, by Admiral Rickover himself. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to touch on that a little bit because I think a lot of our audience may not be familiar with who Admiral Rickover is if they haven't dove into the nuclear space or the, any of the history on submarines. But right, he was the Admiral that uh was responsible for the first nuclear powered submarine and really the first small modular reactors right yes well admiral rickover had an important influence on the entire nuclear space around the world yeah uh, the submarine program he started it with the uh, building of the uss nautilus as you noted was the first nuclear submarine uh, that uh, submarine went to sea in january of 1955 but Admiral Rickover remained in his office as a four-star admiral running the Navy nuclear program all the way until 1982. So do the math. The man was 80, 81 <laughs> yeah. years old when he left his, his uh, post. Um, and so he worked at that post for a very long time. He had over 60 years of commissioned service as a naval officer. Very unusual uh, man. By the time he built the program, it was about 120, 130 submarines, five or six nuclear aircraft carriers at the time, and probably nine nuclear-powered surface ships that were not carriers. Yeah, so, and really the, the basis for light water reactor design that proliferated throughout the entire plant. Right. Well, as uh, another note of history, the Naval Reactors Program designed the very first uh, commercial nuclear plant, or at least I should say the first commercial nuclear plant in the U.S. The Brits actually beat us by a year. Uh, shipping port was went critical in 1957. An interesting little tidbit is that it wasn't even funded until the spring of 1954. So wow. imagine that commercial operation by the end of 57. Yeah. Super fast. They did things faster in the 50s. Why, why can't we do that now? It sounds so, sounds so easy. Well, it's amazing because they did that with slide rules, T-squares, and you know, uh, hand-drawn parallel lines on a drafting board. So it, it, it is a pretty impressive feat. Uh, and again, it's a good question why we can't design at least as fast today. 
as we did then. Going back to my uh, my short biography, served on two submarines, including a chief engineer's tour, and then spent a good portion of my 33 years in the Navy doing uh, work at the Na- at Navy headquarters for analyzing finances for training, for maintenance, for shipyards, uh, even uh, served as the requirements officer for naval reactors for about uh, two years. So had got a lot of exposure to a lot of the inner workings of the Navy because of some choices I made during my career. I was a professional commander, never made it past that, but that gave me an interesting opportunity to, to have tenure um, and to ask a lot of hard questions in meetings because I wasn't going to get promoted and I wasn't going to get fired. <laughs> After I retired from the Navy, I went to work for Babcock and Wilcox on the Empower uh, SMR program. Uh, that was from 2010 to 2013. I left uh, having read the handwriting on the wall. Three months later, the program was canceled. Um, yeah. And then I spent a lot, the, the next, what, 10, eight or 10, eight years uh, writing, uh, reading, uh, podcasting uh, for the Atomic Insights blog and the Atomic Show podcast. Uh, talked to an awful lot of people about it, advanced nuclear systems, dug deep into the technology, and uh, eventually wrote a blog post uh, about investing in uh, advanced nuclear and attracted the attention of some Silicon Valley venture capitalists and thus on now a venture capitalist working uh, on uh, analyzing and investing in advanced nuclear power ventures. That's fantastic. There's, we've got so much to cover. And I mean, Rod, we, we've spoken once on the phone before. Um, I want to dive into your podcast. I want to dive into nucleation um, and learn more about it. Um, if you've got any war stories from your time in the Navy, I'd love to touch on those. Um, but first, I'd like to circle back to the BMW experience and the Empower SMR, because I'm super curious about it. I think it's relevant mm-hmm. to probably some a series that we have coming up in, in the near future on SMRs and microreactors. Um, what what was it like? I, I did some reading up on the Empower project um, between the last time we spoke and now. And uh, it, it seemed like there was a lot of promise and a lot of hope that it was going to move forward. But you mentioned writing on the wall. Can you kind of walk us through that project for those that aren't familiar well, can, with it? I can give you my my position, my, my perspective. Yeah. I I, again, had a rather broad-based view of the project. My job there was as the lead for writing procedures and processes. So I uh, didn't manage a whole lot of other people. I had uh, direct uh, responsibilities. I had one person working with me slash for me. Uh, But I had to work with everybody. I had to talk to all of the players and the the project from the, the... you know, entry-level engineers all the way up to the CEO of the the portion of the company I was in. I even ended up having to talk to the CEO of B&W a couple of times. But the CEO of the project, because uh, Empower was actually created as a, a separate division slash company within the uh, organization, was a guy named Chris Mowry. And I had uh, a numerous interactions with him. Uh, Jeff Halfinger was uh, the, the exciting technical lead for the project and uh i knew jeff from the time i was in the navy and and talking about some other stuff uh, including 
I have skipped over my time as the inventor of the Adams engine, but we'll go back to that maybe later. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the project the was, overview of the project. Yeah, yeah the yeah. project was really exciting. I was there uh, the day they announced the project as a blogger uh, in 2008, I believe. Really uh, interesting uh, presentations, uh, a lot of support from politicians in Tennessee and in uh, Virginia. Um, and there was just a lot of interest and excitement. This was right before the financial crisis. At that time, natural gas prices were in the range for electric utilities of $10 to $12 a million BTU. People were talking about a nuclear renaissance because there didn't seem to be any other real options. $10 a million BTU is really expensive gas. Even today, we're, with all the things that are going on, I think it's running around $6 a million BTU. Yeah, but in 2000, it's really helpful because my parents sold natural gas for a living and it paid for my college education. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all depends on your perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's helpful so, for me, but yeah, for most of the rest of the country, <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't bad for the country. It was yeah. something that would stimulated a lot of development, not only in nuclear, but it stimulated the people investing a lot of money into figuring out how to get gas out of tight uh, formations. Uh, you know, tight gas, the hydraulic fracturing, the horizontal uh, drilling, none of that was cheap. It had to be, in, you know, stimulated by having the opportunity to sell gas at a pretty high price if you get it out. Right. So excitement and the project started off, you know, like any other startup, it was pretty small, but it was a startup within a well-established, uh, fairly prof prosperous corporation. B&W had had been in existence since about 1845, 1850, when Babcock and Wilcox developed boilers that were at that time heated by steam. But that, boilers was the company's real core competence. They had gone through a stage where they built commercial reactors, uh, built about 10 or 11 in the U.S., including one that was uh, known as TMI Unit 2. Um, the company got out of uh, pressurized water reactors, commercial reactors, soon after TMI. I think by about the mid to late 80s, they'd sold off that uh, part of their business to, uh, at that time, Framatome. So BW is getting back into nuclear. Uh, they were excited about dusting off a, the kind of the nucleus of the design was a, a integral reactor that they'd designed for uh, other purposes. It actually traced its roots back to the reactor that was built for the NS Savannah, the first and only commercial nuclear ship in the U.S. Babcock and Wilcox had built that, so they dusted off some of those wow. design concepts. And they decided to start building or start designing uh, a uh, light water reactor that had a lot of uh, improvements over existing reactors. Uh, the system was integral, so the, the reactor, the steam generator, the pressurizer was all in one vertical pressure vessel, and there was no piping. Uh, and that was important because uh, leaks in piping or breaks, uh, double-ended ruptures of piping is kind of the, the controlling accident for light water reactor. Uh, for large light water reactors with, with loops and pipes, the requirement for the regulators, you can prove that you're safe, even if your 
14 inch diameter inch thick pipe suddenly breaks in half and completely severs and opens both ends of it, double ended rupture. But so that excellent was not you know, needed, but the integral design had some challenges. It meant that you had to design control rod drive mechanisms that could survive in the middle of a hot water environment. It meant that you had to design, had to figure out how to pump the the fluid, the the coolant, the, the working fluid through the reactor and through the steam generator without uh, having your pumps fail. Initially, the idea was actually would uh, can the pumps and put them inside this integral reactor that led to a, a, a year or two worth of redesign when they figured out that just wouldn't work, ended up with the pumps on top of a lip around the, the edge. Because of the fact that the natural gas uh, prices crashed from 10 to $12 a million BTU down to two to three, the, the economics of the project were really uh, tight. Uh, actually, it was not economic to to figure out how to build a reactor and put it out and produce electricity at a competitive price. The price had changed dramatically, you know. From yeah, so so ended up having to redesign the reactor to increase the power level within the same uh, volume, same container. We did that three times, and each time they did that uh, redesign, it cost another year worth of engineering to to come up with and redesign so the company could never get to the point where they could actually submit a license application there were some conflicts with partners and eventually when well, the team got pretty big and the and the expenditure were pretty high there was over a hundred million dollars a year being invested into this project coming from the profits of the company and of course from people outside of the, the project some of them started to ask questions how come our Profit sharing is all going to this one project, and they're not showing any returns. And and we don't, they hadn't even filed an application. And some uh, activist investors bought a good portion of the B and W stock, and then convinced the rest of the investors that it was time to just cut and leave. So, sometime around 2014, they shrunk the team from 100 down to 12 or something, and Said, well, well, we'll keep it on life support. And eventually, it was completely shut down. Maybe by 2015 or 2016. Part of the difficulty for B and W, uh, you know, one of the reasons the expenditure got so high was it was an established corporation with a lot of established managers, so they weren't paying startup wages with the stock mm-hmm. options. They were paying corporate wages yeah. um, to some. Some people whose functions may have been a little uh, opaque, from even from my point of view. Yeah, that's that's a great way to phrase it. I'll try and summarize. So you guys had an integral design um, that was innovative. You're trying to build. It was an SMR, right? Mm-hmm. It could be classified it as is, an SMR. It would have but, been a total of a hundred and hundred. Well, started off one hundred twenty-five. I think by the time we finished all the redesigns, it was up to about 180 megawatts. Okay. So definitely oh, an SMR, but it was an SMR that was 80 feet tall. Yeah, yeah. Small, small is relative, right? So, um, but had 
because of market changes, had to pivot multiple times to upsize the reactor, try and make it bigger to help the economics. But that caused project delays and delivery delay timings. Um, and then cost creep is a very real thing. Large, large company, established processes. Yeah, eventually led to after several years, didn't didn't cut cut the cheese, as some might say, to to make the cut for um, continuing to fund it internally. So, yep. had BMW ever considered just selling that or spinning that off? I mean, some companies might have tried to, I don't know, divest a project like that. There were efforts. Matter of fact, the, the partner in the project was Bechtel, and uh, they shopped it around. They wanted to, if they could. They before they spent any real money to buy the design because it, the design was pretty close to finished by the time that everything happened. Before they spent any real money for the design, they wanted to find customers. And as you know, twenty fourteen uh, not only was natural gas cheap, but so was oil. I mean, it things really changed in the energy market, and there just was no interest. And so, since they couldn't attract any customers, they didn't want to spend any real money. I think that B&W still owns the technology and the rights to the technology. Do you think there'd be any chance of them taking it off the shelf and trying to revamp it? Or they've got another, BWXD has a different SMR project now, right? Yeah. I think the chances are about as high as me dunking a basketball. I'm 62 years old and I still can't jump. (laughs) I'm 62 years old and 5 foot 10, so. Okay. (laughs) There you go. Okay. Um, so you, you left there and you mentioned pseudo retired, but started blogging and started a podcast. What would you, uh, what'd you blog about? And Well, I actually started the blog when I was still on active duty. Atomic okay. insights dates back to 1995. So it's been on the web continuously ever since. Um, I started it when I was, uh, I, I took a little break in my active duty career and uh, tried to found a small modular reactor company called Adams Atomic Engines, Inc. And uh, we won't really go into the technology details here, but we one offshoot of that was a, it started off as a paper newsletter, turned into a blog fairly quickly. It was a blog that was designed using HTML and making it look like a blog because at that, that time there was no blog software. Um, yeah. WordPress so, hadn't been, hadn't been written, yet, right? No, no, not <laughs> even Blogger hadn't been written yet. So, yeah. Um, but Atomic Insights uh, has a wealth of articles about uh, things ranging from the uh, Army uh, nuclear power program to the, the NS Savannah to uh, some of the early days of, of nuclear development, uh, high temperature gas reactors, all kinds of different technologies. EBR two, I think, there's probably about. 20, 25 to 3,000, 2,500 to 3,000 articles uh, on Atomic Insights. Um, Did I, you write I, most of them? Uh, all but about a t- couple of dozen, probably. Well, there we go. I've had some guest posts. Most of the others I wrote. Um, often, quite frankly, in my pajamas, uh, in the early morning hours before I got into my car to commute to D.C. Um, when I was still on active duty. Uh, so I, I I revived Atomic Insights where it was um, doing what it needed to do to help support me. Um, and then I started the Atomic Show around 2006. I got really interested in podcasts because they were saving my life on a regular basis. 
Now, I was commuting to D.C. every day from Annapolis, uh, getting in the car at 5.45 or 5.30 and driving to work with less than enough sleep. So the podcasts were keeping me awake and I was getting interested in them and decided I could start my own, you know. And of course, it was, it was an interesting uh, struggle for me initially because there really wasn't a lot of uh, infrastructure available. There wasn't a lot of software. Um, but I figured it out. I uh, started off with a partner named Shane Brown, who at that time was a, was a tech guy from Sandia National Laboratories. And Shane and I had a great time. We had some good shows. And then he uh, went to work for a group that wouldn't let him podcast. Um, he could He could... <laughs> He could be a, a podcaster uh, from Sandia National Laboratories, which works on, works on weapons. But when he went to work for naval reactors, which worked on, you know, pressurized water reactors, he couldn't talk about it anymore. So the Atomic Show, I think we've got almost we're knocking on the door of 300 episodes out there. It's had a variety of different formats, a couple of guys talking, uh, a group of up to five or six uh, nuclear interested people t- chatting, interviews, book reviews, that kind of stuff. So, it was uh, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I do want to ask who's who's been some of your most interesting guests or conversations that you think you've recorded. Let's see, Michael Schellenberger uh, was oh, yeah. one of the guys I, I chatted with. I chatted with the the founders of Oklo, uh, Jake Dewitt. Uh, yeah, I sh- chatted with. Jose Reyes, the chief technical officer for New Scale, I think we we chatted back in 2006, 2007. Very interesting conversation, you know, yeah. when they were still very young and and working hard to get their system uh, up and ready to go. Yeah, that was like early days. Like we've got a great idea at Oregon State, right? And we're yeah. Uh, well, he we, we yeah he he to... moved out of Oregon State by that time, but it wasn't too much after that. I mean, I visited New Scale and and you know had a lot of interesting opportunities over the years. I've talked to a couple of different presidents of the American Nuclear Society. Uh, one of the most interesting interviews was with uh, a, a recently past president of ANS who was available to me while he was walking the streets of Naples, I think, Italy. <laughs> And okay, it turned out pretty go. good. It wasn't, he somehow managed to keep the wind noises off the microphone. So, oh, there you go. Nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can talk to you while I'm uh, going for my afternoon walk. That's exactly. Fine. Exactly. Yeah. So, how, how have you seen the industry progress over the last 15 years from that? Let's, let's say classified from like the 2006 uh, interview with New Scale to kind of the modern day. I mean, I've, I've heard lots of people characterize it as well. Oil and gas prices killed the industry and, and a demand, just like you mentioned, for the market. Um, and Fukushima in 2011 caused a bunch of fear and angst and made requirements a lot tougher. But is is that true? Because um, I, I feel like there's still another thread of, you know, innovation in the space stumbled. Um, what's, what's your perspective? Well, certainly there's, it hasn't progressed the way I expected back in 2006. Uh, things take longer uh, than they should in nuclear. Yeah. The external influences certainly have, in, have, have made an impact. It, it's really hard 
if you've got a certain goal in mind in terms of cost uh, to and then have to to figure out how to do things completely differently um, so that the the lower uh, natural gas prices and the very effective marketing plans of the natural gas industry to position their uh, product as the cleanest fossil fuel and you know have large signs on buses cruising major cities that say powered by clean natural gas and, and many of those things you know it it it, it had an impact um, certainly the angst around Fukushima and the the emphasis by people that are opposed to nuclear the effort to remind everybody uh, about the the event at Fukushima although they never really spend much time reminding people anything other than it happened they don't talk right. about actual events the what happened to the plant how many people got hurt or injured by the accident the fact that the the 50 uh people that the Fukushima 50 that were famously you know risking their lives to do their work every one of them is doing just fine now unless some of them have got aged out and passed away from other natural causes you know there really yeah. wasn't the the kind of risk associated there that people were imagining or people were taught to imagine as i recommend as i tell people to think about just think about the impact of what it would have been like if there would had been a resort or an apartment complex or you know some other maybe even an amazon warehouse with a, with a few hundred people working in it how would they have survived a tsunami that crashed over the the uh, seawalls you know yeah. it just imagine that what happened at fukushima was there were two guys that got caught in the turbine building that flooded and they passed away everybody else yeah. they you know there was a challenge there was evacuations some of the evacu right. most of the evacuations were completely unnecessary uh, but because there's been such fear of radiation taught to everybody people assume that if there's a nuclear accident within 10 miles or 12 miles or in some cases 50 miles you have to leave which is kind of yeah. absurd including i feel like the u.s regulator <laughs> well i i wrote a whole bunch of articles about the impact of dr gregory yasko on the the industry he had a, a extremely it was an impactful chairman, let's put it that way. So if anybody wants to read about how Greg Yasko uh, affected nuclear, they can go look on the blog. And by the way, he's now one of the professional anti-nuclear activists that, that I run into on a regular basis. And he was the chairman of the NRC? Yeah. Well, he, he even wrote a when book called Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator. And if you read that book with a with a critical eye, you know he tells you that the only reason he was put in that job was because of political pressure from his uh, political sponsor Harry Reid, and he was trained how to be anti nuclear by Ed Markey. Reid forced him into the chairmanship by holding a bunch of nominations hostage. Well, he forced him onto the commission by holding nominations hostage, and he he forced a deal with President Obama to get his five electoral votes from the state of Nevada to put him up to be the chairman. 
And eventually, Yasko was pushed off the the commission by the other four commissioners, both Republican and Democrat, because he created a hostile work environment, particularly for some of the female members of the staff. Do, do you think there's any chance of revising some of the regulations? I mean, there are efforts in, in place right now. There's there's one of the encouraging things is that there have been about four laws uh, passed to improve conditions for nuclear, including one that uh, Nuclear Energy Modernization Act, NEMA, um, and it requires the NRC to make efforts to change, to change their reviews, to streamline the reviews so that they can do an advanced reactor in three years, which is a reasonable period of time. And so those efforts are in progress. And I, the, there are some extremely talented and intelligent people at the, at the NRC. I, they're very much capable of doing what they're told to do what they're directed to do. And unfortunately, over the years, they have been directed by some of their leaders to do things uh, in a very slow and deliberate manner with no consideration at all for what the alternative is, what's going to happen if you don't build a nuclear plant. They are required to demand perfect safety of nuclear, but can't compare it to other alternatives. So, but I think they're going to do better. So again, the other four laws, the other three laws have have done things like started the uh, advanced reactor demonstration project uh, out in, it's going to be in Washington and and, uh, Wyoming, a bunch of other things. There there is good progress. And the good thing is those laws have been passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities. It's been really cool to listen to politicians and, you know, I listen, I, I watch a lot of hearings on, and they're not always things that are broadcast or recorded in the uh, news media, but they're all things that are available online. And you hear these politicians from both sides saying that this, one of the things they like about working on nuclear issues is that they, one of the few times they can actually agree with people yeah. from the other party. So yeah. there's good reasons for both to enjoy, like it. And so things are getting better politically. There is money flowing. There's efforts to uh, make sure that money flows to reactors that are not doing very well financially because they're 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 selling electricity in a market where the prices are lower than they should be. Right. It's not because they can't compete. It's that they can't generate enough revenue to make it worthwhile. I mean, op- yeah. owning and operating a nuclear plant isn't easy. Uh, it's not something that managers or, or even executives like doing if they're not making enough money at it. It's not that they aren't making any money, but they need to make enough money to make it worth their while. Yeah. You know, all businesses have profit margin goals and all that stuff. And if you don't meet it, you get cut. Yeah. And they perverse some perverse energy markets now that aren't priced appropriately, in my opinion, right? Meaning uh, intermittent sources aren't priced effectively. The, the balance market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well the, there are uh, some of those intermittent sources, uh, variable sources, whatever you want to call them, that get a $24 per megawatt hour payment from the government for every right. megawatt hour they produce. It doesn't matter whether the market needs it at the time they yeah. produce it. And they, so they push their way into the market and push the prices in some cases to below zero. But yeah. they, if they don't produce, they don't get their $24 a megawatt hour. So they force 
that are product in. Brilliant contracts, right? Like if you could have the same contract with as a nuclear power plant, then it'd be like it'd just be no brainer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In most cases, I mean, some of the nuclear plants have been reasonably profitable, uh, effectively and and sufficiently profitable by uh, negotiating long term power purchase agreements at a price that may be a little bit higher than expected at the time they produce it or they they commit to it but it's a it's a great deal at those times when the the prices skyrocket because they still have to keep delivering prices uh, product at the price they agreed to but in some places the utilities were prohibited from signing long-term power purchase agreements California in particular yeah disaster let's let's pivot to kind of your current venture with nucleation um, sure and and why don't you give us an overview of uh, what you guys are trying to accomplish and when you got started, size of the team, and what kind of uh, projects you're looking at now? Sure. Well, nucleation capital. The easy answer is right now we're a team of four, uh, two partners and two associate members. Um, again, it, it's it's me and a bunch of venture capitalists from Silicon Valley. Uh, we're raising. Uh, money. We started actual fundraising about the beginning of uh, 2021 was when we first started getting our first checks. We started making our first investments in the third quarter of 2021, and we're continuing. Our fund is an evergreen fund where we continue to raise as we're making investments. We don't do a bunch of raising and then and then make investments after we've got a certain amount of money available. We raise as much money as we can and deploy that uh, as quickly as we can into some really exciting ventures. And uh, there, there's some specifics about the, the way the fund is structured and the, the platforms we use. I won't go into that here, but if people want to know more information, uh, it's at nucleationcapital.com. And I guess the thing I really want to say is that if you are an accredited investor, that means you're making uh, 200k a year, and you look like you're not going to reduce from that, and or or you have uh, total investable assets in the range of a million dollars plus. You're an accredited investor, and you can participate at a level ranging as low as five thousand dollars a quarter for uh, four quarters. If you want to get a piece of some private companies in the early stages, the ground floor. Who've got some really exciting technologies? You may not be able to to make the decisions yourself, but we're working real hard to find the right diamonds in the rough and do what we can to help them prosper. We've got some pretty uh, solid experience on the team and uh, are able to to help give something worth more than just our checks. Yeah. And right now, our checks are pretty small. Uh, range it's in, in the six figure range, and in some companies that that's a those are in uh, seed and uh, state and Series A, but we're also participating in some companies at a little bit later stage, and they're inviting us in because they really like what we do and our focus. As far as we can tell, we're the only venture capital uh, firm out there that's focusing on advanced nuclear and the opportunities in advanced nuclear involved in the transition from fossil fuels to something cleaner and in some cases more abundant 
than fossil yeah. fuels. We believe that nuclear is a transition that, that gives you a better energy system with more capability to provide energy for more people at an affordable price and also to provide uh, a good transition for the people that work in fossil fuels because nuclear is not very dependent on fuel costs. It's really dependent on a lot of human costs, you know, whether it's in construction, management, uh, design, operations, Planning, all of those things. It's all people. And, and that's kind of cool, I think, to have an energy source that's mainly focused on people and not sending vast sums of money to somebody who happens to be sitting on a natural resource like in Russia, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Kuwait. You know, Oklahoma, Texas. Well, <laughs> but, kidding, but kidding. you guys, yeah. you know, Oklahoma and Texas, you know, that there is a lot more employment in shale gas than in uh, traditional gas. You know, yeah. it's a lot of people involved in making shale gas work. There's got, you got a lot of truck drivers. You got a lot of people who drill. You got to keep drilling over and over again. You know, it's a different well, I, I, t- curiosity of mine. And I've, I mean, if I had to put a number on it, I'd say the shale boom has another five to 10 years before all the core inventory is drilled up and we're moving to tier tier B, tier C inventory. And, you know, the, the replacement, our ability to place the, the existing demand with a similar product um, is going to disappear in the next yeah. decade. Would be yeah. my, as someone from the inside. So, well. And, and I think you're, we're already seeing that many of the people that pumped an awful lot of money into shale uh, during the 2005 to, to 2020 timeframe are really shy about putting a lot of money into it right now. Not mm-hmm. that they think that, that, sh- that natural gas doesn't have a market. They just want their investments to actually pay back. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't I give pay. you a dollar, when am I? I got to get my dollar back. <laughs> well, many of them, you know, didn't, yeah, didn't get for any dollars. A good, back. Yeah, a good bit of the time they were putting in a dollar and getting back fifty or seventy cents, right? Um, because you know, when you when you drill a well, the profitability of that well really depends on what the price is that you can sell your product for. Particularly yeah. in shale, where an awful lot of your production comes out in the first one to four years. You know, it's not like that very long tail that you have. It's a it's a pretty bursty type endeavor. So, to have some, how do some of the startups that you guys are looking at think about that problem? Well, most of them right now are really focused on getting their product uh, to a point where it can be manufactured and they can see a path to producing electricity at a price that's competitive. No matter what shale does, yeah. And in some cases, they're looking at markets where the competition is not natural gas or coal. The competition, in some cases, is uh, diesel fuel that's been transported long distances. Right. So the north of Alaska, the north of Canada, ships, um, you know, other markets like this where. They don't have to compete against very large grid scale, uh, economy of scale fuels and production. They, they're going in smaller markets. Some sure. of the smaller reactors are 
aiming to get their economics to the point where they can compete against the grid because they've uh, improved their manufacturability, they've improved their product design, they are really streamlining the the safety, not making their reactors safer, because it's hard to be safer than zero deaths in 70 years, but they're yeah, making their... It's the world's best, gold standard, right? Right. But they're making their reactors as safe with fewer components and fewer layers of, of protective systems. And what all the things that you don't build, you don't design into the plant, you don't have to manufacture them, you don't have to install them, you don't have to maintain them, you don't have to keep testing them, you don't have to decommission them. You know, there's all these things that are an advantage if you can eliminate systems and components. And, and they're doing that. You know, the, the GE BWRX300, for example, is a very simplified and refined version of a, of a system they've been building. Uh, I think they built the first one at Vallecitos and went online in 1956, 57, 58. I don't remember exactly. A long time ago, before I was born. Um, and but so they're on the 10th generation of this technology and they've gotten pretty good at it. Of course, they haven't built the first one yet, so we'll see. But they've got a, a contract to build one in Ontario. The T Tennessee Valley Authority is, hasn't announced it yet, but they've made indications that they're going to build one at Clinch River uh, down in the south. I can't remember what state is Alabama or something. Um, and there's others, lots of interest in Estonia and other places for this reactor. They build one in Canada and it works well. They've got a whole bunch of provinces that are all si already signed up in a line to to follow along what Ontario is doing. So that's great. And of course, <laughs> sorry, did I, I might have missed it. You may, it's okay if you can't say it. But who were some of the players or folks that you guys have looked at investing in? Uh, we or have invested in a company called Radiant, which okay. is a uh, a micro reactor designer where the the principals and the engineers are uh, SpaceX refugees. They they were did a, did a great job at SpaceX helping to design the landing system and also worked on some uh, planetary power systems that got them interested in nuclear. Um, so we, we took a piece of them. We uh, have an investment in Core Power, which is a, a UK-based firm that is uh, really working hard to get the uh, notion of nuclear-powered ships uh, socialized, and they're, they've got all kinds of publications and, and conferences they're doing, but they're, they are falling along as, as part of the, the process of developing something called the molten chloride fast reactor. Uh, the, the primary developer there is TerraPower, the Bill Gates company, um, and the first part of that project is molten chloride fast reactor experiment, what they call the McCree. Core Power's the, the only uh, venture that's part of this uh, partnership. And so we, we took a piece of them. We're just now finalizing, uh, and I can, I can officially reveal it now, we've taken a piece of Deep Isolation, which is uh, a company that's uh, adapted oil and gas drilling techniques to the uh, task of deep geologic storage of used nuclear fuel or nuclear waste, whatever you want to call it. Um, so they, you can drill and get the waste into a very stable uh, rock formation without building a mine, without having to, to make it a habitable for human beings, without having to put vehicles underground, 
and all of those things associated with underground mining. That's really hard, especially at a thousand or two thousand feet deep. It's not hard to to put a drill down and turn it sideways and and uh, make a nice long lateral to stack a bunch of assemblies in. And as you know from being in oil and gas, drilling wells is something we do all the time. We've poked a lot of holes. In this it's it's so cheap compared to, to making a tunnel. <laughs> thousands yep. of feet underground that you have to ventilate you have to allow people to walk in yeah mm-hmm. yeah you have to have ingress and, and egress you have to have drills for practicing evacuation yeah. if you're underground you have to communication systems that that you know radios don't work very well underground there's all kinds of things that are really a challenge um, yeah. and you avoid them you just drill deep holes and you can do them you know closer to where the waste is rather than having to say well it's so expensive to build this mine. We can only do it in one place. And we've got to transport all the waste that we have to this one place. And, you know, it's it's not, I don't think there's any safety issues with transportation. But, you know, I, was a, I, I ran a small business for a while. Uh, moving your inventory around just is stupid. You know, you keep it's adding cost to it. Transportation is expensive. value. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So, okay, yeah. that's that's excellent. Uh, I, I mean, I like the deep isolation guys. I've been aware of their technology for a long time. I've got a different idea about utilizing the subsurface also that I'll chat with you afterwards. But, um, mm-hmm. but uh, any others? I mean, you guys, I assume you guys have a pipeline of companies that you guys are looking at. Yeah, well, of course, I can't discuss the ones sure, that are in sure. the pipeline. I can just, I can tell you that you know, trying to get your secrets ahead of time, Rod. <laughs> no, no, I, we're interested in we're you know being a, a that's the stage we are. We're very interested in the in the smaller companies, the, the companies that are in fact building smaller systems. The so micro reactors are 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 pretty exciting from our point of view. There's there's real opportunities in bigger reactors, and maybe someday we'll be big enough to make a difference there. Um, but uh, so, so those we were looking at some of the the uh, other end of the of the fuel spectrum besides the the waste isolation. Uh, uranium is a pretty interesting play these days, and there are some really interesting uranium prospects out there um, in the venture world. Uh, people with really good assets that they are very close to developing, and you know they they weren't economic a year ago, but they're really economic now because they're. The price of uranium is about doubled, which doesn't really affect the price of, of nuclear electricity very yeah. much. Um, so just you know, uranium is a very right. small piece of it. Uh, we're looking at some other component uh, suppliers, things that are are common among many different systems. Um, you know, we, we took a good hard look at a radiation shielding company, and unfortunately, the the shielding company has done so well that they don't need any any capital right now <laughs> they, they have uh anyway so that's yeah there's there's things that are are happening there's there's a, a broad spectrum and now i also have to say that we're not completely isolated to advanced nuclear we are interested in uh ventures that are adjacent to nuclear that make nuclear better or make nuclear uh improve the profit prospects for nuclear Things like direct air capture, which is a huge energy sink, but performs an important function. But it only really works if you have a clean energy source that's really cheap. And we think that some of the ventures that we're in can produce really cheap power if they are run all the time. 
some of the the reactors that we're looking at have continuous online refueling. So they don't need to stop and refuel. They do need to stop and get inspected now and again. But even that is a different requirement when it's not a ASME pressure vessel that has to withstand uh, 2,000, well, 3,000 PSI test pressure. That's a, that's a, a very strict inspection routine for those. A little bit different when you're operating close to atmospheric pressure. Absolutely. Rod, that's uh, fantastic. We're coming up on our time. I, I still want to ask you some questions we ask all of our guests uh, okay. since this is the YPE podcast. So what's what's one thing about uh, energy that either scares you or uh, keeps you up at night? Well, what keeps me up at night more than anything is continuing down a path where you believe because somebody's done a computer model you believe that you can do it all with wind, water, and solar. The more jurisdictions that try to go down that path, the scared, more scared I am because I know what it's like if you don't have power. And it, it's bad enough if you don't have power for a little while. Um, you know, when you have a power outage that lasts a day or so, it gets pretty bad, really, you know, it gets quite a bit worse if it's a couple of weeks. And I've experienced a two-week power outage after Hurricane Hugo. Actually, I didn't yeah. really experience it. The, the, my home experienced it. We were not there. We we evacuated. <laughs> we, I was I was and we evacuated. We got and we came back when the power came back on. So that scares me. Um, and we have good sources of power uh, that are available. Some that are not quite as clean as others, but they're they're good. Uh, reliable, or at least potentially reliable source of power. Wind and solar are not even potentially reliable. They, yeah. you know, there's nothing humans can do to change how hard the wind is blowing or how intensely the sun is shining. We just can't control it. Excellent. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what, uh, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? Uh, keep your eyes and ears open at all times. Learn as much as you can. Pay attention to the bosses you don't like so you can learn to avoid things. <laughs> Emulate the bosses you do like so you can uh, learn from their successes and keep reading. Awesome. Rod, we uh, let folks leave us on a positive note. Where, uh, where do you see the future of energy? Where is this all going? <laughs> I used to tell it, and I have to admit that I've said this for a long time, so you can take my advice for what it is. But the future's so bright, I got to wear shades. Uh, and we have the, the capability of making an enormous difference around the world. There's 2 billion people that don't have access to even a moderate amount of reliable energy or electricity. And we have lots of people these days who are falling into energy poverty because their electric bills are displacing their fuel, their food bills. You can only have to make choices of which one you pay. And so we need reliable, affordable, clean power and heat. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff and you have the ability to, to, 
ask questions and uh, move past what you've been taught. Nuclear is a real interesting place to be. Awesome. Rod Adams, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you.